think in some ways the more pressing question is the political pressure that would be brought to bear uh, if he really did try to hereby order all trade to cease with China. Uh, you know, you, you've seen some pushback in the context of Mexico, and I think you would see and are seeing in some ways considerable effort to push back against that, you know, given the size of our relationship with uh, the People's Republic. It's not clear to me that Congress uh, would stand for it or that the uh, political pressure wouldn't limit his ability to do it apart from the legal question. Yeah, but just talking about it achieves many of the goals that he wants to achieve. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it makes everybody think of. Welcome to episode 275 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We're back from a hiatus. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking to technology, security, privacy, and government and expressing views that uh, do not reflect those of any of our institutions uh, or family members. Uh, I'm joined today by David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and where he was the head of the National Security Division, and by Dave Itell, who's the CEO of Immunity, Inc., and the Chief Security Technical Officer of Sixterra Technologies. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Uh, uh, we uh, are going to try to mix up very recent stories uh, in the last week with things that seemed important uh, during the month of August when we weren't covering them. Uh, uh, so there'll be a little bit of uh, Time Magazineism as well as uh, uh, very recent events. Uh, but something that has happened within the last uh, a week is Cyber Command revealed or leaked the fact that it had uh, launched a cyber attack against the uh, Iranian uh, revolution guards uh, that apparently had a significant effect, to hear them tell it, on um, IRGC's ability to attack tankers in the Gulf. Dave, what did they do? Well, the, uh, I think there's two interesting things here. They, To sum it up, what they did is deleted a database full of naval traffic. They probably deleted the backup since we've probably been on that network for a long time. And they probably deleted some of the associated software that was meant for managing and recovering and handling all that database information. And one thing I found very interesting is we've had two sort of phases of reporting here. One phase that said we sort of hit missile and tracking and radar and all this other stuff, command and control information. And now the second phase where all of that is very strongly denied by your typical unnamed officials. And seemingly much more specific uh, information about what we've targeted and what the expected effect was uh, was released. And I think if your takeaway is, is sort of very specific to the operation, you're probably still making a mistake because we really don't have clean information on this sort of thing. And I think we could get that by having Cybercom start to announce its own operations instead of using a sort of telephone game form of leaks to various newspapers and trying to have us all piece together what the goal was and what happened in specifics. Yeah. So that's, that's, but, but that's it, a weird thing. You know, sometimes uh, these activities are clandestine, which means that uh, uh, we're willing to acknowledge them if they come to light, but we aren't eager to bring them to light. And there's a place for that. Uh, uh, but yes, it would make us all feel a lot better if they uh, acknowledged them, but it might not feel make the Iranians feel better. They might feel obliged to uh, well, actually, they're already getting kind of crazy in cyberspace. Aren't they just sort of attacking everybody everywhere right now? 
Well, the Iranians are more controlled than they might try to make you think they are. But there, there was a lot of discussion on Lawfare Blog, for example, about you know the level of deterrence this would take. And it's hard to have deterrence when you're operating via leaks. And it's also, I think, underestimated the level of fear that U.S. companies have for the Iranian government cyber attack operations. So, you know, we go into a lot of banks. They use the Iranians' threats against banks as one of their major sort of threat models. And they're, they're very afraid of denial of service, which is a very difficult thing to prevent. It's, well, it's kind of embarrassing that we, that we can't prevent it uh, uh, at, at this stage in the Internet's life. And I don't even know that they're worried about DDoS so much as they're worried about an Iranian actor getting on their network and doing what we just did to the Iranians, but internally to a bank. This is one of the things that we see a lot, for example, when we look at some of the financial trading networks. Yes. So there's there's that, still a lot to talk about with this particular way we're doing things, shall we say. All right. Well, we also got a, a, a taste of Chinese information warfare, which is considerably different from both the Iranian and the uh, um, uh, Russian version because they were kind of forced into it by what they perceived as a serious threat from the Hong Kong protesters. Uh, uh, David, Chris, uh, uh, what did we learn about Chinese approaches to information warfare and how to counter them? Well, we learned uh, that, you know, Russia may have pioneered uh, this to some extent in the 2016 election attacks uh, for the modern era, but uh, it seems to be a tactic coming into fashion uh, and in fashion already more broadly. You learn something about the agenda of the People's Republic of China here. Uh, They are willing and able and, I guess, feeling compelled to use this tactic against protests in Hong Kong um, more than in an effort, say, directly to destabilize or weaken the United States the way the Russians did. Um, That may be because they feel like uh, they don't want to take on the United States directly the way Russia did. It may be because they think they can win against the United States and don't need to resort to that tactic. But um, or it may be that they're doing it and we haven't detected it yet. But it's pretty clear they do feel some kind of serious pressure to deal with Hong Kong. And you see the, you know, social media companies adapting and evolving and catching this and uh, making at least some efforts to shut it down. There were several hundred accounts shut down by Twitter and a, a spammy network Uh, of approximately 200,000 accounts that Twitter says it never uh, allowed to activate in the first place. Um, So, you know, there's offense and then defense and the ecosystem is adapting and people are starting to use the tools where these tools of, of social media attacks, where they feel the most urgency for China. That seems to be Hong Kong. Yeah. I think the real difference between China and Russia is China aspires to be a regional hegemon, the, the, the power in the region that no one can cross. And Russia just aspires to be a global pain in the butt. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very good, Stuart. So in keeping with their regional hegemon uh, um, 
uh, ambitions. It turns out the Chinese have also been running websites for a year or more that if you went there, they would go with an iPhone. They would compromise your iPhone. They had a bunch of zero days that they were running against uh, uh, iOS. Uh, And then more recently, now we've discovered that they may have had exploits running against Android and against uh, uh, Microsoft Windows. It was kind of an all-purpose compromising uh, website. And the only reason that it took this long to find must have been that it was not a website you would go go to unless you were directed there by somebody uh, with some kind of uh, uh, honeypot. At least that's that's that was my quick assessment. Uh, David, uh, I tell, uh, um, what am I missing? There's so many interesting things about this particular operation or set of operations. I mean, first, just to clarify a little bit, it looks like they've been using what were probably native Uyghur websites for, for about two years to hack literally everyone who went to those websites or attempt to hack those people. They had, it didn't look like too many O-Days. They had a couple O-Days. They had a custom implant that would download onto iPhones and essentially upload everything that iPhone was doing to the Chinese authorities. They had uh, I haven't seen any details yet of the uh, Windows and Android attacks, but apparently those also existed, as you would have expected from this team. There was a lot of sort of feedback from this after Project Zero released it, but Project Zero said they got the tip off from the FBI, which is an interesting sort of public-private partnership, shall we say? Yeah, um, I, and and I, let me let me push on that because. It's kind of inconceivable to me that the FBI wouldn't have gone to Apple with that. And so their decision to go to Project Zero, which gave Apple, I think, seven days to fix the problems, if I remember right. uh, um, Correct, correct. It it suggests that uh, the FBI just got sick of waiting for Apple to do something. Uh, And Apple, of course, is the one big Silicon Valley company that is deeply in hock to the Chinese government. And you wonder if there <laughs> isn't some uh, international poli- politics and diplomacy going on here. Uh, and um, the FBI may have just played the Project Zero card. I mean, if you're hinting that Apple would not have patched these vulnerabilities because they were afraid that the Chinese would look poorly upon that, I don't think there's any evidence for that. They patched them very quickly. And yep. they usually, I mean, this is their their core business. But to say that the, the Google researchers, if you have a hint that there's something fishy going on on a website, Google has global visibility, and that's not something that the U.S. government necessarily has. So they probably were the right team to take a look at this problem and do an extremely detailed analysis of this particular. So the other, uh, the, the, the other, uh, the more uh, forgiving interpretation of this is the FBI had something, but it wasn't conclusive. And they went to the experts saying, is there something wrong with this website? Because uh, we keep seeing people going there. Yes. And so the, maybe they picked up a very weird hint. Maybe they picked up like one of, one of the Uyghurs that they were tracking happened to be infected with something that they had also infected. And they're like, what is this? And where did it come from? And they had like a cash hit. And they're like, hey, Google, take a look at this. And I, so I think this is let's, – let's look at it positively. This is a good sign. And a lot of very interesting research came out of it. But let's look at it negatively and say that the Chinese have an extremely advanced effort 
against a particular ethnic group within their country that they are performing what is essentially genocide against. And we have very few ways to react to that other than this sort of thing, or maybe this is the future of how state work is done. We blow your O-days by talking to Google. So there's a lot to say. They did not have exploits against the very latest version of iOS. We don't know what their Android and Windows reach was, probably extensive. And people are pushing back against Apple in terms of looking at, you can't look at your own iPhone and say what's really loaded in any directory other than sort of the documents directory. And so that's, it's a kind of a, an issue in that you can't protect your iPhone, only Apple can protect your iPhone. And it's a matter of policy that they've had forever. And that's something that a lot of security researchers have been pushing back very strongly against because it's hard to give the Uyghurs the protection that they think they would need. Yeah, but so it's, there's it's philosophy too, though. I mean, Apple has always been, uh, you know, we'll take it from here, uh, user, yes. right, uh, in its philosophy. And it has, you know, uh, most of the people I talk to believe that uh, the iPhone is more secure than uh, an Android phone, uh, uh, all things equal. We, we can, I mean, maybe is the, I think what people do get is a false sense of security from their iPhone because so few things like this go public that they think there aren't any. But what we do know is that almost every government appears to have its own chains of iPhone exploits and they are able to do what they want on your iPhone. I, I once uh, I was talking to somebody about whether they should practice law in a law firm or uh, in a, uh, a in-house position. I said, well, if you go in-house, uh, you'll get a much greater illusion of security. Yes, <laughs> that's <laughs> exactly right. And I think the greater illusion of security is what we pay for. It's, <laughs> it's fantastic. Speaking of attacks, uh, well, uh, let's stay with China for uh, for a minute. Uh, all of this, I think the things that Twitter and Facebook were doing to knock down the, uh, the fake news and the promoted tweets uh, 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 telling the uh, Chinese government line on uh, Hong Kong are probably the nail in the coffin for their aspirations to break into the Chinese market uh, because right now the U.S. and China are breaking up rather than anybody breaking into uh, markets uh, and we – Speak at a time when fifteen uh, percent tariffs just went into effect. They'll they'll be going up to twenty five, I think, in December. And practically every story on uh, the U.S. China trade war acknowledges that U.S. companies, uh, tech companies, are not divorcing themselves from the Chinese supply chain, but uh, looking for a second option that could be expanded over time, whether it's Vietnam or Indonesia or Taiwan or Korea or India. Everybody is looking for a place they can uh, uh, move some of their Chinese operations so that they're not at risk of a worsening trade war. And we certainly are seeing a worsening trade war. The president even uh, offered the view that he was well, – he said, I hereby order U.S. companies to find alternative <laughs> uh, um, uh, supply chains. Uh, uh, and, and you know, we got the usual CNN reaction was, oh, you can't do that. That's illegal. But it really actually isn't, is it, David? You know, he has a tremendous amount of power delegated to him under IEPA and various other statutes uh, in this area. 
Um, the language of those statutes refers to things like emergencies, but in practical effect, you know, the courts have tended to defer to presidential declarations of emergency, and there have been a number of emergencies in effect for many, many years. So, you know, at a minimum, without really giving a final answer on the, the, the strict legal question, it's very clear that the president has extremely broad authority here and that courts would likely be reluctant to second guess. I think the, the broader question, as you try to sort of make sense of the phenomenology of Trump's tweets and statements and the Trump administration's actions on trade is, you know, what what is his goal and, and how is he going about trying to achieve it? Because there's really two versions of a, a trade war with China. One is this very broad brush, economically based uh, agenda in which the president has the advantage that, you know, we import more than we export. But the tactics have just been horrific in the sense that instead of going out and trying to recruit a broad coalition to put trade pressure on China, he's been flailing and starting trade wars you know, with everybody, Canada, Mexico, and our European allies as well, which doesn't lend itself to a sort of a coordinated effort in pursuit of a specific goal. The, the narrower version is the more national security-based kind of uh, attack or, or effort focused on things like keeping Huawei equipment out of our 5G or other networks. Uh, and that's a much more traditional, narrower national security-based approach. And there's been some effort there as well. But there, too, it doesn't seem to have been executed with a laser-like focus on a particular desired goal. So it's a bit of a mess. Uh, and I don't think the president is necessarily clear in his own mind. Maybe he doesn't even see a real advantage in being clear as to which model uh, he's trying to pursue. Yeah, I I think um, it, policy, I, I fine motor skills are not his strong suit, as I have said in the past. Uh, well, uh, and uh, uh, but I think his strategy, such as it is, is surprisingly consistent with the views of most Americans that 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 we have been that China has been treating us as an adversary a lot, for a lot longer than we have been treating it as an adversary, and that uh, a fight over these issues has been brewing for a long time. Uh, uh, but you know, you, you can certainly argue with how he's carried out the fight. I will say that uh, if you're trying to figure out what IEPA allows and what it's focused on, it, you're better off going back to the old name for IEPA. It was it was the Trading with the Enemy Act. Uh, right. And so if you are sort of descending into an en enemy adversary relationship with a country, at some point, there's going to be a cutoff of trade with the enemy. And uh, that is what the uh, IEPA uh, was designed to do. It was used in World War One when it was passed. It was used in World War Two. I think we they broke up Bayer Industries, uh, so there was an American Bayer and a German Bayer, uh, uh, precisely in order to keep Bayer operating in the U.S. without any German control. So it, it, it he clearly has authority to do this. I, you know, it may fall into the category of legal but stupid, but that I, I think it's, it's there's a lot of legal authority there. You know, I'd go further, Stuart, just to sort of cap onto that. I mean, you know, we we know that 
both North Korea and Iran are the subject of very, very broad import-export bans uh, using some of these legal authorities that the president enjoys. Um, but you know, we don't do much trade with either of those two countries, uh, at least not legally. Um, you know, I think in some ways the more pressing question is the political pressure that would be brought to bear uh, if he really did try to hereby order all trade to cease with China. Uh, you know, you, you've seen some pushback in the context of Mexico, and I think you would see and are seeing in some ways considerable effort yeah. to push back against that, you know, given the size of our relationship with uh, the People's Republic. It's not clear to me that Congress uh, would stand for it or that the uh, political pressure wouldn't limit his ability to do it apart from the legal question. Yeah, but just talking about it achieves many of the goals that he wants to achieve. Uh, it, uh, it makes everybody think, oh, I, I need a second line of uh, supply, which is exactly what he wants to do because it shows the Chinese they're at risk. And of course, it's leading the Chinese to say we need a second line of supply that is not American. Uh, and we've seen a lot of that happening as well. All right. You're a generous soul, Stuart. <laughs> Webmin significantly compromised a, a very popular or apparently pretty popular uh, uh, remote uh, uh, server administrative uh, tool. Uh, and uh, it has been compromised for quite a while, uh, and people are a little unclear on exactly how it was compromised, or at least I was. Uh, it, this is a an open source project, and it may be that somebody has taken advantage, some state has taken advantage of the fact that the uh, um, it's open source, and therefore lots of people can suggest uh, code changes, and in this case, they suggested a code change that allowed you to take control of uh, uh, servers remotely, uh, uh, even though you didn't uh, have access to the uh, uh, to the uh, passwords. A am I right on this, uh, uh, David? You were almost right. Okay. And so I think Webmin is one of a few very popular tools for managing sort of your cheaper end of hosted Linux servers, which makes it a really good target because if you can get into everyone's webmin, you have at you have access to sort of this large array of sort of not very well managed Linux servers that still might do something useful. And so uh, in April 2018, someone, we still don't know who, went into the build server and actually trojaned the build server such that uh, you could sort of remote root into it if you had the right exploit. And recently, in like August 16th, I think, they just someone published an O-Day exploit for it, and then everyone all of a sudden freaked out and they started patching it. But it, I like to use things like this to bring back into our focus the exciting world of open source trust and how we have millions and millions of servers running code from just people, random people with random names who we don't know and never will know. And so um, it's kind of fascinating to see. We'll probably never find out who did this. But wow. the really exciting part is that people upgraded their webmen and assumed that that fixed their problem. Even though, I, of course, they could have, if, if they were compromised with this, uh, all, all kinds of other things on their system would have been compromised too. Yeah, their whole network is, is now essentially potentially owned. But that's not how people think. People are like, oh, thank, thank goodness there's a patch. Now my problem is gone. 
right? So yeah, like, yeah. This, this barn door is locked. <laughs> yeah, right? Like it's a kind of amazing thing. But even beyond that, the entire trust model that they have was proven not to be good, right? So they're like, we install this random software from this person. It's signed. Who knows what the security mechanisms of it are? Maybe it came with you know their version of Linux. They're like, okay, well, that trust chain went back and was broken at some point, And now I have fixed that trust chain in a sense, but it's completely wrong. They still have the same philosophical problem and it's going to happen again and again. We don't know that they haven't hacked 30 other different, you know, remote administration tools in this exact way. And we have no way of ever finding out. We can't, so even, we can't even go back and say, uh, what were the signals, the, the identifiers for this particular contributor to see whether he contributed other stuff uh, or that IP address contributed other stuff or um, anything of the sort? Well, the contributor themselves is clean. They, the uh, problem was someone hit the build server, and we don't know how. And so that's very exciting. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> like, and they had it for like, you know, two years, a year maybe, a little bit more than a year. So that's a long time. So and, there, there, there was also a controversy over uh, the way this was disclosed. The guy, it sounded like this, he has a Turkish name, uh, uh, disclosed it at Black Hat or DEF CON uh, uh, without any prior warning, as I understand it, and even released a uh, WebSploit uh, uh, module so that people could begin exploiting it right away. Am I right about this? I mean, there, if, if you don't have a disclosure drama, then is it really <laughs> cybersecurity? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like, like we, it's, it's, that's like the, the cancer we just can't give up. We just love it. We go back to it again and again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> David, Chris, when, when I talked to you about what we might have missed in August, you said – you know, some versions, a less, slightly less colorful version of uh, the wolves who've been circling end-to-end uh, uh, -end encrypto in the end-to-end uh, -end encryption in the uh, uh, tech world. Uh, that is to say, the Five Eyes and European governments that are unhappy about it uh, I, I seem to be getting closer and taking little nips out of uh, uh, the companies. Uh, uh, what, what's been happening recently on the question of uh, Western governments versus end-to-end uh, -end encryption? Yeah, while some of us were uh, on vacation, there have been some very loud noises made uh, by U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr at the Fordham Cybersecurity Conference at the very end of July and by U.K. Home Secretary Priti Patel, uh, who wrote some op-eds, uh, all basically reinvigorating and renewing the claim, you know, that warrant-proof encryption uh, is a bad thing. And Barr sort of saying, you know, even if a, an extraordinary access mechanism for government to get access to encrypted comms pursuant to warrant will, to some degree, lower the overall security of communications on the Internet, you know, that's a price we ought to be willing to pay. So it's an escalation of rhetoric, I think, uh, by the two, uh, you know, U.S., U.K., uh, and the U.K. In the, in the context of a Five Eyes conference. And it's a slight change in the, the nature of the argument where they're acknowledging that there would be some security trade-offs, but basically arguing those trade-offs are worthwhile. Um, whether either country is going to be able to actually do anything by way of enforcement is an open question. The U.K. has, has not heretofore pushed hard against U.S. providers using its 2016 
Investigatory Powers Act. But I think the, the sense is that the UK government believes it could do so, but has held its hand uh, for a while. If we see a US-UK Cloud Act agreement come into effect, and if the UK thinks it has the support of the US administration on this, and if the Boris Johnson government can get itself <clears throat> organized and, and uh, you know <laughs> focus on anything other than Brexit and suspending parliament and all these kind of good things, you know, there's a chance there that an enforcement action might be brought, and we'll have to wait and see. I think for the longer run, the you know emerging European Electronic Communications Code, which may go into effect in 2020, does look like these over-the-top providers are going to be regulated more like traditional telecom providers, and that may, in some cases, include enhanced obligations to provide access to plain text. That's so, always that's always been the general rule. If you if you're a telecom provider, you have to facilitate, and you cannot uh, design systems that defeat wiretaps. Uh, and uh, the response of Silicon Valley has been, we ain't no dumb pipe providers. We are the guys who provide the smarts uh, and you yeah. can't screw with the smarts. Yeah. And so that's reflected in like our Kalia law that has not been extended beyond, you know, traditional, mostly traditional telecom and, and related services. Uh, but this European code defines communications provider in a way that I think is considerably broader and uh, is going to embrace at least some over-the-top services. So yeah, it looks like over time pressure is going to mount here. What actually happens is hard to predict and, and whether anything will be done aggressively in the short run is also hard to predict. But the, the rhetoric and some of the substance uh, are both you know, showing signs of heating up. So Cloud Act, uh, it does seem to me that if I were Boris Johnson and, and or even uh, uh, Bill Barr, I would say, you know, we can wait until we know whether we have to do a uh, free trade deal with uh, the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, before we decide whether we're going to do a Cloud Act, because we can always toss the Cloud Act in as a uh, an additional goodie. How would that change the pressure on uh, the big Silicon Valley providers of communication services? Well, uh, you know, the, the Cloud Act would, in theory, at least allow the Brits, and they're very likely to be the first uh, country with whom we reach a Cloud Act agreement, to make a direct request uh, using their own laws. Um, and then, you know, we're going to have a question about what the UK laws uh, actually require or permit the government to compel. Um, the main function of the Cloud Act is to lower the U.S. blocking statute that was in the Stored Communications Act, uh, which would prevent uh, them from doing anything and allow U.S. companies to sort of rightly say that they were between a rock and a hard place. So it, it doesn't solve the problem or guarantee that the foreign government will have access, but it certainly opens up a new front in that possibility. So the the Europeans in general have been kind of grumpy about the Cloud Act, uh, uh, which they don't think uh, uh, acknowledges privacy interests to the extent that it should and allows uh, too much uh, intrusion into their territory uh, uh, by the U.S. government. Uh, uh, and so as the Eurocrats are thinking about their wonderful uh, leverage over the UK, if the UK is contemplating Brexit. Uh, this is one where if there's Brexit, there's going to be a cloud agreement and it's going to shape the future of all cloud agreements because it's going to be the model. Uh, uh, and so they are losing leverage that they otherwise would have uh, 
for uh, uh, trying to keep Britain from giving away uh, points that uh, Europe values as part of the Cloud Act negotiations. Yeah, you're right, Stuart. And it's an extremely complicated picture with a, a whole bunch of moving parts and it's very tough to make you know, definitive predictions here. But, but I just, I do think there is a notable uptick in the pressure that seems to be being brought to bear. And, you know, whatever you think about Bill Barr, you know, he is extremely competent, very, very smart, very tough, does not shy away from a fight. Uh, you know, and if I were a tech company, uh, I would be more concerned about Bill Barr coming after me, given that Fordham speech that he gave, than say I would have been <clears throat> under the leadership of uh, Matt Whitaker or Jeff Sessions. I, I agree. He, he's hard-nosed. He's got nothing to lose. He doesn't need a job when he leaves. Uh, uh, and uh, his values about uh, the deference government uh, uh, discovery orders are due were shaped in the 80s and 90s and uh, before, <laughs> uh, uh, as were mine. Uh, and so uh, he, he uh, is less likely to say, oh, yeah, government can't really do anything right. It's probably Silicon Valley that we should trust. Uh, that's just not in his uh, uh, mental uh, apparatus at all. Speaking of which, uh, and, and we'll we'll try to close with this or maybe one other thing. Uh, the fight over whether Silicon Valley hates conservatives, actually, there's no fight over that. Of course, they hate conservatives. But whether they're actually doing something about it uh, continues. Um, a, and uh, uh, the president has weighed in on this and told somebody in the White House to draft an executive order that would uh, allow uh, the administration to step in uh, a, when Silicon Valley platforms uh, engage in biased censorship of uh, um, uh, the right, uh, uh, as uh, they almost certainly did when uh, Twitter shut down Mitch McConnell because he had an ad that showed people uh, uh, outside his home uh, making violent threats against them. And uh, Twitter said, oh, that's violent speech. You can't have that on Twitter. And they changed their mind after that, but it just sort of added fuel to the fire. We saw a report from John Kyle saying, uh, uh, I've done an audit or I've begun an audit uh, of Facebook, uh, recommending some modest uh, uh, changes in Facebook policy and promising more to come. Uh, uh, so Facebook has sort of gone the, uh, uh, we're going to investigate ourselves uh, route. Josh Hawley, uh, Senator Hawley, is eager to take away their 230 immunity. We're going to get some people on to talk about uh, Section 230 and the immunity. Uh, the executive order that is being worked on uh, apparently as a first pass suggested the FTC and the FCC conduct investigations. Uh, and my impression is that both the FCC and the FTC have said, no, that's all right. We, we would rather not. Exactly how this executive order is going to shape up is a little open to question. But if I were in the White House uh, uh, working on this, I would probably say, why don't we have the Justice Department uh, weigh in on this from a we have a view of what Section 230 requires and what in good faith administration of a censorship program is, and it doesn't include shutting down uh, ordinary conservative speech. Uh, and if, uh, if we investigate you and find you did that, 
we're going to say we don't think you're entitled to the 230 immunity anymore. That's just us talking, but we have a pretty big loudspeaker and we get to file amicus briefs. Uh, and that would be disastrous from the point of view of the platforms. Uh, probably Bill Barr would be happier to take that than either the FCC or the FTC. Last thing I just wanted to cover, a uh, security firm uh, announced that it had a whole new way of doing encryption. Uh, they paid $115,000 to Black Hat so that they could get a, a, a speech uh, to Black Hat. They started giving the speech and people started uh, shouting them down, uh, intervening to tell them, uh, um, mainly in the question period, what doofuses they were, that they were selling snake oil, that their uh, whole program was going to be taken down by Black Hat because it was uh Lacking in scientific uh, uh, justification, or at least it didn't fit the uh, cryptographers' uh, uh, view of themselves and what they should do to justify uh, coming up with new crypto systems. Uh, so far, uh, just more drama. But uh, now uh, uh, Black Hat has actually done that, t took down the speech, and uh, were sued uh, uh, on what I have to say is the weakest uh, justification for a lawsuit I've seen. The argument is you promised that you had a code of conduct uh, in which you told people to behave uh, nicely uh, on the floor. People didn't behave nicely. Therefore, you're liable. And so uh, um, I don't know, uh, Dave, whether you think that uh, this uh, proposal is completely whacked uh, or uh, not, um, uh, but uh, welcome your thoughts on uh, the lawsuit and the uh, uh, the brouhaha over uh, uh, the new crypto systems. I mean, I think you meant David, but oh, I sorry. mean, I run a I, yes, competing sorry. conference, and I will say that code of conducts are very new and also very difficult. We've been um, changing ours every year and trying to figure out how best to enforce it. It's not easy to implement one, but it is required. And so when you first said that it was code of conduct related, that's the first I'd heard about it. And that kind of makes more sense than anything else I've heard on this, which is that, you know, we went, you know, it's almost part of the contract of attending a conference these days is the code of conduct. And so that almost makes sense. I will say, I don't know why anyone ever would attend a sponsored talk. Makes no sense to me <laughs> at all. Yeah. So I, I, I can I can. Well, uh, Patrick Gray has uh, sponsored interviews and I, I, I felt the same way, except I listened to them and they were pretty good. Uh, he has a way of bringing out interesting stuff that is not just uh, uh, why you should buy this product. I, I totally agree. I enjoy that podcast as well. But the people who were going to this particular talk knew what they were doing. And it almost, to me, I wasn't there. It almost, to me, feels like it was an ambush. They went to heckle. Yeah, yeah, and you know, just don't go. Just don't go to any of those. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, uh, uh, fair enough. Uh, and you know, I don't think Black Hat has given the money back, the hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. Which you no, I, I doubt they're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking as a conference organizer, but you know, if yeah. you're going to take the guy's speech down and not display it. I, you know, it's not unreasonable to say, well, give me back my money. I paid they for the They want their speech. money back. Yeah. I, I, I hear they have more of a case than I would have initially thought. Let's put it that way. All right. I, let's, uh, let's 
cut this off. We're at 40 minutes, uh, just about. Uh, uh, thanks to David, Chris. Thanks to David, I tell. Uh, um, this has been episode 275 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please do send us uh, guest suggestions. We've got a whole bunch of them, and we're working through them now. Uh, uh, we've lined up several guests uh, coming up. Uh, Camille Stewart from New America is going to be talking about how bankruptcy affects uh, national security tech transfers. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, with um, Joel Trackman from Tufts University about IoT security and regulation and what you can do to improve IoT uh, security. Uh, uh, we're going to, uh, as I said, we're going to try to get a couple of people who like Section 230 more than I do in to explain to me why I'm wrong, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, uh, and then we're going to have a, at least one, probably multiple programs on uh, uh, quantum computing coming up. Thanks to Doug Pickup, the audio engineer, Michael Bieber, our editor. I'm Stuart Baker, host and chief provocateur. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.